your eyes up, don't get all tied up Hope you wise up the multiple lies of the multi-faceted, multi-complex system of living that people are living Stuck in inertia, that's a diversion, government worship, instead we are searching Ancient mysteries, ancient history, sacred energy, and how to discern it Human autonomy, truth and philosophy, UFOlogy, human psychopathy, super anomalies, human ecology You got lobotomies up in your consciousness, all the thoughts that we've been dancing around The system wants to blow your candle out, but we won't let it We reject it with our pathetic lies, so we chant it down Welcome back to Chan It Down. I'm your host, Loomis. ChanItDownRadio.com is the website. Today's episode is 228, also part 28 of the Beyond Earth series. I invited on Barbara Lamb, the famous hypnotherapist that goes into alien abductions. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the fascinating and controversial topic of alien abduction, human hybrids, and crop circles. Check it out. It's a long conversation. We're going to go into all kinds of things here today. Just listen to her talk about all of her experiences in this fascinating subject. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to Channel Down. Ten years now, and it's just awesome to be able to give you guys continual shows. Thank you for all the support. There will be no live stream this month of April. Sorry to announce, but just don't have the time. Next month, though. And thank you all the support. Patreon supporters out there that have helped me. Thank you. I uh, encourage you if you want to listen to Afterthoughts, my other show, sign on for $2 a month. Cancel after $2. It's fine. You know, I don't mind. But also now um, you can buy an album. I didn't know you couldn't, but a listener contacted me and said he couldn't buy anything off the website, but now you can. So if you want to buy an album or uh, donate to Chant It Down, it all helps. All this to carry on past 10 years so thank you everybody much love for supporting Channet down today you're going to experience a lot of unique stuff whether you're a believer in ufo abduction or not i think it's good to keep an open mind to the whole conversation we have today there's a lot of interesting phenomena out there we just don't have the explanation to and i'm going to share with you at the end of this after barbara lamb the encounter that i had in the year 2000 and I've shared it before but it's buried in the archives so you'll have a listen after this interview 
Welcome back to Chan It Down. I'm your host, Loomis. This is Chan It Down Radio, ChanItDownRadio.com, and this is episode 228. And I've been long fascinated with the ET abduction phenomena, even when I was a kid. I used to talk with my cousins about it when we were little and looking at the stars. And hearing these stories can be frightening, but there are too many cases all over the world of this phenomena just to write them off as hoaxers. We can go back in history to the book of Enoch, Ezekiel, or the angel Gabriel taking Muhammad over the earth, or modern stories like that of Travis Walton or Whitney Strieber. Many of these stories come with wiped memories and common tales of, of seeing the same entities. So today I've invited on one of the world's leading experts into this phenomena, Barbara Lamb. Barbara is a longtime psychotherapist, having been licensed in 1976 and a highly trained hypnotherapist and regression therapist since 1984. In 1991, she began regressing people to the details of their extraterrestrial encounters and has regressed well over 2,000 people to those and to other paranormal experiences. This work and her past life therapy and her soul guidance work continues with sessions in person in San Diego and Skype and Zoom. She has made appearances on Ancient Aliens and other shows. She's received three Lifetime Achievement Awards from the International UFO Congress, from the Starworks USA Conference, conference and from the Conscious Life Expo in the field of ufology and for uh, experience or support. In addition, she is a crop circle researcher. Barbara has been dedicated researcher of the crop circle phenomenon since 1990. She personally visited and investigated crop circles, hundreds of crop circles in England for 27 years, conducted crop circle tours, and she continues to follow this amazing phenomenon. She has given numerous lectures about crop circles in many, in many groups, large forums, and conferences across the U.S. and other countries, and radio and film interviews on this subject and abductions and past life regression, and also co-authored the book Crop Circles Revealed, and has substantial information and pictures of these amazing patterns laid down in our crops from some mysterious agent. And that's a very interesting career, and I can't wait to dive into it. So welcome to Chant It Down, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to add a little bit to that wonderful introduction uh, because, you know, I keep on doing regressions. I'm still very actively doing them mm -hmm. these days, too. And so the number increases. Uh, you said about 2,000 people yeah. I've done work with, abductions or regressions with for their ET experiences. But since that number, um, I've done many more. It's more, it's closer to 3,000 people. And some of those people, uh, fortunately, lived close enough to me to come back for a number of regressions because they kept on having extraterrestrial encounters. And so that number is closer to 5,000 regressions wow. just for the extraterrestrial regression. So there's a lot that's coming out, not only from me, of course, but uh, many other people. And uh, I think it's very, very important that we know as much as we can about that. Uh, I think some people think, as I did originally years ago, think that it's, um, you know, it's got to be science fiction. And um, I know that's, I was convinced about that 
all through the 1980s. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I saw Close Encounters of the First Kind, as many of you have. Mm -hmm. And I saw that wonderful movie E.T. by (laughs) Steven Spielberg. And, um, you know, I thought, well, wouldn't wouldn't it be wonderful if there really are other beings out there and if they would really come here? And I was thinking the other day, too, that when I was a little girl, I was fascinated with Superman. And the Superman comics were coming out uh, one of those years during my childhood. And my big brother collected them. And I I can remember, even as a very little girl, thinking, ah, that's interesting. This wonderful man who's sort of superior to the, the rest of our men, that he came from a different planet. And, and it just a couple of days ago, it occurred to me that maybe when I was that little girl interested in Superman, thinking he was just the most wonderful hunk ever, <laughs> that maybe that kind of opened my consciousness to later, many decades later, you know, learning that there really are other beings on other planets and they really do come here. They don't necessarily live here uh, like Superman did, but but they do come and visit and interact with millions of people all over the world. And many of those people who have the extraterrestrial encounters don't even know that they're having them. Some of them do know, but there are many people who have lived into their 50s and 60s and 70s, people I meet, and then they begin to realize at those ages that, hmm, maybe that's really happened to them. And they they think back on some peculiar experiences that they've had, like a close UFO sighting, or waking up and there's a strange light in the room, or waking up at night and there's some really unusual beings there in the room with them, or little orbs of light or balls of light swirling around. Or sometimes people have a perfectly normal life, except that every once in a while, there would be a period where they couldn't account for the time that had gone by for an hour or two or three or four. We call that missing time when somebody is doing something and they're very aware of the time of day or evening it is. And then suddenly it seems to be a few hours later that they cannot account for. So sometimes by the time somebody is in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they, they, you know, that's a riddle that has never been answered. And then they begin to hear about other people having these encounters with these other beings from somewhere else in the universe. And they begin to think, hmm, I wonder if that's what could have happened to me. And the beings are so clever in making us not aware or only aware for 
a very few moments when they come for us. Uh, We don't know exactly how they do that. They have some fantastic ways. We don't know how they can take one of us in full body right through a dense wall or through a closed window or a ceiling and a roof. And there are all kinds of things that that they do that we just don't understand how they do. Although I think that some of our scientists and engineers are beginning to put two and two together and they're getting some clues about the mechanics of of things that some of these extraterrestrial beings do. So it could be that we're going to be knowing more about that in the future. But I think for the the meantime, in the current time, um, all of that's pretty mysterious to us. How do they do that? Like when they come into a person's room at night and the woman is sharing the bed with a spouse or partner or sibling or sharing the room uh, with a person in another room, another bed in the room, that other person is always seeming to be totally deeply out and asleep. Yeah. Cannot be roused, cannot be awakened. And the person who's going to be taken for the experience, you know, often tries, of course, to call out to that person or to nudge that person if if there's one in bed with him or her. But that other person does not respond at all. And, and that's very frustrating for the person who's being visited and yeah, taken. it is. Like no way to stop it. And not only that, but as, as many of you have heard, um, the person who's being visited and is about to be removed for a couple of hours that person cannot move. Uh, I've had many, many people report to me that they can't move anything in their body, but they can move their eyes. So in other words, if a person is lying on his or her back, sleeping and opens the eyes and there are these beings and the person can't move, which of course is very disturbing for the person, um, but the person can at least move the eyes like to the side and toward the bottom of the bed and up above. And that's how they can see that there are other beings. Like when I'm doing a regression, I always say, um, you know, what, what are you aware of? And the person might say, there's somebody here. And I'll say, well, where is that somebody and, oh, there's one of them over to my right, you know, rolling the eyes over to that. And there's two over to my left, and there's one down by the foot of the bed. Oh, and there's one leaning right directly over me, right over my head, right over my face. And so, in other words, <clears throat> they can roll their eyes and, and see. But then I say, well, uh, what about... Uh, the rest of you, how are you doing? Well, I can't move. I can't move. And I can't call out. And my husband or my wife or whomever um, is just sound asleep. There's no way I'm going to be able to get the attention of that person. And um, 
It's all very deliberately done by the beings. And then sometimes they remember enough uh, to know that they are being levitated up off the bed. Not that anybody is lifting them with their hands. They're just being floated up and floated across the room and usually out through a wall or even a closed window. And um, without necessarily even being touched by the beings, but all the while that they're being moved through the wall and outside and up into a craft, uh, the person is still not able to move the physical body, just move the eyes. Yeah. And, and then once they're in the craft, they sometimes they are allowed to be upright and to actually walk a, a bit. And then sometimes they're just simply floated into the craft and onto a medical type table, like an examining table. It depends on what they are there for. Yeah. There are many, many different kinds of beings and many different agendas. It seems like each species of extraterrestrial being that comes to us, each species has its own agenda, its own reasons for coming here. And some of them are uh, very, very interested in um, more medical issues, uh, physiological issues, you know, how our bodies are constructed and how they function, uh, what elements they're made of, and uh, they seem to put a lot of attention into that without really caring for the person and what the person's life is about. But there are other beings who uh, don't care so much about our bodies and don't do medical exams at all or anything of that sort. Uh, but they very often are very interested in our talents, our abilities, our family lineage, our DNA, that seems to be of great interest to a number of the groups of beings. And some of them are, are very interested in our consciousness, our spirituality. And those beings tend to sort of train or instruct the humans they take in spiritual practices in the expansion of consciousness. So those people, of course, have a very different experience when they're taken by a group of beings. And some of those beings that do the teaching and the consciousness expanding spiritual emphasis, those tend to be described by people who experience them as very loving unconditionally loving. Mm -hmm. And um, those people who have those kinds of experiences with those kinds of beings, you know, really value, appreciate, even treasure those experiences with those beings. So you really hear a lot of different kinds of stories from people depending on what their experiences have been. And some people are very frightened about the whole thing, and I can certainly appreciate 
why they are not hurt really or damaged, but it can be very, very frightening for them by some of the more scientifically oriented extraterrestrials, the more self-serving beings, you could say, because they're interested in learning what they want to learn. They don't really care about the person or what the person is experiencing, or it certainly doesn't seem like it. But I've learned in regressing so many people that some people, when they're taken and they're put on a medical table, that they think, oh, this is going to be awful. What's going to happen? I'm sure I would think that too. And so they are examined. They're sort of poked and probed and maybe samples are taken of their hair and their skin, maybe some some of their fluids, maybe some of their blood. Um, but um, and it, it's kind of like a medical exam that that we have here with our doctors to quite an extent. Some of the procedures seem to be relatively similar. And, and some of them are, are really quite different. And one of the things that happens frequently, not to everybody, but uh, to many of these people, um, is that eggs are taken from the ovaries of the woman mm-hmm. and kept by the beings. And then sperm is often taken from some of our men in these experiences. And we've learned that 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 is for the purpose of their making hybrid beings who are part extraterrestrial and part human. And most of those hybrid beings, which I've known about through all of these years, since 1990, uh, most of them are not human enough in proportion. And so they tend to live on the ships with that group of ETs. Or maybe in some cases, they live on the planet that those ETs have come from. But there's a whole other group of hybrids whom I have come to know uh, in around 2011 or 12, I met the first person here on Earth, without having ever known that there were hybrids here on Earth, I I met a woman at one of the international UFO congresses, and she just happened to come up next to me, and I turned around to see who was there. And I saw this woman with these beautiful, beautiful, big eyes, bigger than other eyes that I've seen on humans. And I, I, I looked startled at, at seeing these, these eyes. They looked like human eyes, but definitely bigger. And a um, very attractive, nice woman. And I looked startled, and she said, what? Like, why are you looking at me that way? And I said, well, I hope you don't mind my saying this, but you remind me of a hybrid. And she <laughs> burst into a beautiful smile and said, I am a hybrid. That woman, um, I'm sure she would not 
mind my mentioning her name because she did become fairly public. Her name is Cynthia Crawford. Uh, She has passed on now, unfortunately, but she was making sculptures of a whole variety of extraterrestrial beings. And the way that she would do that is she would go into a state of meditation while she had the clay with her, and she would get instructions from like one species of extraterrestrial at a time, and they would be directing her, guiding her hands about how to make the sculptures of their type of being. So over a period of years, she she was doing sculptures of at least 20 different species of extraterrestrials uh, that I know of. I have a few of them myself. And, um, and she's always felt that when she was making these sculptures, she was bringing some of the energy from those real beings out there in space, on a spaceship, most likely, and that, that she was bringing in some of their energy, some of their consciousness, and some of their caring for whomever was going to own the sculpture. So she would take these sculptures to UFO conferences and have them all out on two or three long tables. And <clears throat> when people would come and look at them, uh, Cynthia would say, well, just, just look at these and, and tell me if there's one that seems to especially resonate with you over the one that you feel particularly drawn to. Yeah. So many people were doing that and were buying that sculpture that they felt particularly drawn to. And then Cynthia would write then and there kind of give them a like a psychic reading, um, very spontaneous, <clears throat> about what these beings were like and what their idea was for that person. In other words, how that person could serve humanity here on earth. So a lot of those beings were ones who really wanted to see humanity thrive and survive, definitely to survive. And they wanted to have people on the earth that would really help to raise the consciousness of humanity by whatever they were doing here. Yeah. So it turns out <clears throat> that after meeting uh, Cynthia Crawford and realized, oh, that wow, there really is such a thing as an ET human hybrid living here on Earth with us, um, looking like a perfectly regular human being, but with the extraterrestrial DNA in them. <clears throat> and a couple of years later, at another international UFO Congress, uh, somebody was brought over to meet me. And when I saw that woman, I immediately thought of a mantis being, mantis being one of the all kinds of extraterrestrial beings. And so she came over and, and 
And the, the person introduced us to each other. And I looked at her and I said, oh, you remind me of a mantis being. And she leaned closer to me and she said, good for you. I am a mantis being. <laughs> so, you know, I can't tell you why I had that very strong intuition. I mean, she didn't look like a very tall insect, <laughs> like a praying mantis being. She looked like a human, you're saying, but she, she like had features. There was something about her that made me think of mantis beings. <clears throat> and I'm glad that I ventured to say that. And I'm very pleased that she, um, you know, validated that. Anyway, it turned out that I got to know her very well because um, eventually I, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I invited her to come and spend a week at my home with me. Mm -hmm. And I could see that she really did have special psychic abilities and all kinds of intuition and and abilities and um, and I noticed when she stayed with me that she had very very long straight thin legs longer arms than the rest of us do and she was very th slim and uh, she looked very human had a regular head of hair and so forth but the more that I lived with her for that week I thought, oh, I'm okay. I am definitely more and more convinced that she does have some aspects of the mantis extraterrestrial beings. And she, like Cynthia and like the other hybrids I have come to know, the ones who are living here with us on Earth, that they're all here sort of as emissaries or ambassadors for the beings who gave them their genetics. And the way that they were created was in two major ways. Um, in some cases, uh, eggs were removed by a human woman and sperm was removed from the husband of that woman. Mm -hmm. taken on board by the beings, and they mix that together. I sort of picture it like mixing it in a little Petri dish, but I don't know what kind of vessel they really use. But they would mix together the eggs and the sperm and add in some extra extraterrestrial DNA. And in all the cases that I know about for these hybrids who are living here, uh, the DNA added in uh, came from not just one extraterrestrial species, but at least two and more likely three, four, five, or six different species of beings, extraterrestrials, who actually do a lot of work together. So anyway, they would add the DNA to that mixture of the sperm and the eggs creating an embryo, and then on another occasion, they would uh, take the woman and implant that embryo in her womb. So after that, uh, she would be aware that 
she's preg- pregnant, whether she had planned to be pregnant or not. Yeah. Or in some cases, uh, the woman didn't have a partner or a husband. Uh, so it was a miss and hadn't even been with a man. Uh, so she would wonder, what's going on? I mean, how could I be pregnant? If she was married, you know, then it was understandable that even if they hadn't been planning a pregnancy at that time, it could still have happened, certainly. Mm-hmm. So the woman is pregnant and um, carries the baby full term and gives birth to that baby just like the rest of us humans do. And that hybrid baby, um, not anybody realizing at that point that that the baby is a hybrid, but the hybrid grows up in a regular family and goes through school and all the things that the rest of us do. And it usually isn't until that hybrid is in the late teenage years or maybe early adulthood uh, before they realize that they are actually hybrids. But in the meantime, this baby is born here and is a toddler and goes to nursery school and kindergarten and, you know, the whole thing that all of us do. And always that one has felt different. Didn't necessarily look different, but always felt different than anybody else in the family and different than any of the other children ever encountered in school or playgrounds or wherever and didn't know why they felt so different. And each one of those hybrids frequently would look up at the night sky and and sort of call out, oh, my family, come and get me. You know, why aren't you here? And they would say to their own human parents, I don't think you are my real, real parents. I think my parents are really out there. Of course, human parents did not like to hear that. No, they would not like to hear that. (laughs) And, And of course, they didn't understand why this particular child felt that way. There might be other children in the family who were not hybrids, and they never said things like that. So there were clues that these uh, children were different. Uh, they could see auras around people, you know, that that energy glow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. of different colors. Uh, some of them would be able to see a person and say, oh, that person has a really bad stomach ache, or, oh, that man over there has a headache. You know, they could psychically uh, tune in to what was going on in other people's bodies. And they also had the ability to heal. And they had the real instinct to heal. Like if they saw a wounded animal or a person on crutches or a person with any kind of ailment, they would feel very inspired to go and put their hands near or on that person. And healing energy would come out. They also had a real larger point of view, whereas most children were very focused on what was right here in their immediate environment or on the playground. And uh, these hybrid people would play with other children, but they'd often pause and just like look around at the whole 
area, the whole landscape, and particularly look out into space and wonder about space. So a lot of them, um, you know, really wondered why they were different. It was okay with them that they were different, but they were curious about it. Sometimes they got kidded about it as well, sure. including by their own family. Well, why are you always looking at the sky? Or why are you always thinking about the whole universe? Who cares? This, <laughs> this is what's going on right here, right now. Um, there's another way, too, that um, people can become a hybrid. And uh, that is that the, the woman is already pregnant a regular pregnancy with a human man. And then about five or six months into that pregnancy, the woman is taken by the beings and injected through the wall of her extended uh, abdomen and yeah. the wall of the uterus and into the fetus growing inside. So that's how that fetus becomes hybridized. Okay. And, um, and born the same way that I have been describing. And then there's uh, one in um, one hybrid in the book that I wrote with a wonderful man from England, Miguel Mendonca, called Meet the Hybrids. Meet the Hybrids, the Lives and Missions of ET Ambassadors on Earth. I think that's a very important subtitle because that's what it's all about, really. Uh, but one of the hybrids in our book, a woman named Jujuli, uh, she was born and carried and born the regular way we do. And then at age six, uh, beings came to her and gave her an injection of DNA from a few different species. So that's how she became a hybrid. Interesting. Actually, it's a company yeah. before birth. Right. So uh, when I talk about these ET ambassadors, you think I think it really makes sense. At least it does to me. I think it's a good plan, too, uh, that the extraterrestrial beings who do care very much about humanity and they want to see us thrive and continue to exist and grow and develop and beyond where we are now. And they would like to help us, but they cannot come here and live here and do the work themselves because they're, you know, different physiologies and different yeah. ways of eating and so forth. They, they would not be able to thrive here they probably die off pretty quickly and they have different digestive systems and they wouldn't be able to withstand our bacteria and viruses probably uh, so they can't come here but the next best thing that they can do is to help certain humans by giving them some of their dna and their motivation uh, so that those humans can do the work. And all of the hybrids I have met, not only the eight in the book, Meet the Hybrids, but um, a number of other people whom I have regressed along the way. And I'm keeping track in a folder of, of those people, their names and their phone numbers too. 
uh, in case you know I ever want to get in touch with them about the hybridization further. Um, anyway, um, they all are people who are doing some kind of service to humanity um, in, in various fields, too. Um, you know, it could even be an engineer person who's trying to create technology that will really help humans. Mm-hmm. And I know that there have been people in the last number of years that who've been really working on technology for healing and um, using uh, some of the uh, technology, shall we say, from other beings on other planets. In other words, some of these engineers get inspired or get what they call downloads of information from these other beings that help them to develop a healing technology, for instance. And uh, some of that technology is is just starting to come out into the public, uh, which is really wonderful. It's kind of a, a relatively new field, but I think it's going to be expanding and developing with um, healing with light and various frequencies of energies. And so, I mean, this is really different than the normal medical uh, yes, the system right. that we have very different. Yeah, uh, and and maybe those people involved in the regular medical field uh, may might turn out to not be very happy about this because it would probably be more effective in really healing rather than yeah. just treating symptoms. Absolutely, managing symptoms. So um, anyway, uh, a lot of that is going on and. There are other people too. I've I've met people in a number of different fields of interest where they feel that sometimes when they're not really engaged in doing something or focusing on something, that kind of open mind time, like maybe just having a walk outdoors, walk in nature, that they'll get downloads of information that will help them in whatever their work is. It might be composing music. It might be aeronautic engineering. It might be healing. Um, So people in uh, quite a number of different fields who really do something remarkable in that field, bring something new in that's better than whatever we had before. Uh, Very often those people have said, you know, I, I got it from a download when people say, how did you figure that out? And I've, I've actually personally heard a few people say, well, I was trying to figure it out and I couldn't, I couldn't get past this one impasse. But then suddenly there was this whole complete idea in my mind as if, boom, as if it had been dropped into my mind, complete. And when they followed that, whatever it was that they were inventing turned out wonderfully well. I mean, maybe that's how we have computers and so forth. I don't know. I think we have some pretty amazing technology right yeah. now. And yeah, it's maybe, possible. 
Maybe yeah. some of those inventors, we may not ever know who they are, uh, but uh, have received somewhere along the line, have received a download of information that really puts them over the top. Oh, now I can do it. Now I can get this together. I can complete my invention. So I think that's that's nice. And frankly, I really like the idea very much, personally. I like the idea that there there is more intelligence in existence than us humans. Yes. I, mean, I, I like us humans, and I like being a human, but I think that it's inspiring, actually, at least to me, to to realize, not to just think of, but to realize that there really are a lot of other beings of great intelligence in existence. And that we that some people do get to know them to some extent, you know, to spend some time with them and and in some cases really discuss things like when I do a regression to somebody who is sort of revisiting shall we say in the regression revisiting and extraterrestrial encounters um, very often it turns out it's not that I plan this ahead of time but when the person is busy reliving an experience Usually it's on a UFO. It might be on another planet. It might be here in their own home where the visit completely happens. But anywhere, wherever that takes place, um, and they're describing what's going on between them and the beings, um, I w- sometimes I will say, would you like to understand why they are here? Or would you like to understand what they're doing Physically, if they're like doing a physical exam of some sort, physical process. And usually the person will will say, yes. And I say, you can ask them. And you can ask them out loud or you can ask them just in your mind because they're very telepathic. They will know what you're wondering about. And so when the person does that, like, for instance, in, in a medical exam, uh, they might say, why are you poking and probing that? Why are you doing that? And almost always they get a very clear, brief answer, very much to the point. For instance, many people having a medical exam by the extraterrestrials, and, and they want to know, what the beings are doing and and why uh, the beings will say various things depending on the situation but sometimes they'll say well we've noticed that there's something wrong with your liver for instance and um, it's not functioning the way it should and often they'll say more about that and they'll say we advise you when you go home to go to your medical doctor and ask them to check your liver functioning because it's not what it should be, according to all the other human beings we have examined. Or they'll point out a heart problem or a spleen problem. Or 
even more than that, in many, many cases, if they detect something wrong with the person's body without saying anything or asking permission even, they will just go ahead and heal it. And so people will not realize necessarily that what is going on is a healing. Right. And, and I'll say, well, what are, what are you aware of? And the person will say, well, now there's this, all this light. It was bright, but it's even brighter. It's like a, a rolling pin of light rolling up over my torso and over my head and my face. Or they'll describe, oh, now there's this instrument of light just boring down on my abdomen. It's not hurting. It just feels warm. It feels kind of good. It feels like it's penetrating my skin. Or they'll describe some other healing method. Or sometimes the healing is done simply from the hands of the extraterrestrial beings, you know, energy. Yeah, flowing from the hands like we have healers like that here too sure reiki healers and so forth um so after a, a minute or so they realize oh i am being healed of something and if they want to know what that something is they can ask the beings and the beings will say well it's your pancreas or whatever they have detected needed healing, and they're healing it. Sometimes it's very obvious, like a broken bone or something, but sometimes it's something brewing in the person's body that the person doesn't know about. So it's, it's, and it's at that point when those beings that often have seemed very uh, serious, studious, scientific you know, not not loving and caring, in other words. Right. They're just going about their business with, you know, like, like scientists would. Um, that, uh, that That's the point at which sometimes people realize, oh, these beings aren't so bad after all. They're not doing something bad to me. They're really helping me. And I think that that's what a lot of people who have these experiences don't ever get to knowing why the beings are doing what they're doing. They yeah. just feel victimized. It's easy to feel victimized. I probably would too, you know. But um, if you take a little bit of time, a little more attention to it, um, and to try to find out what they're doing, then it really changes the viewpoint of the whole experience. I have talked to so many people, even beyond the ones I have regressed, so many people who give me reports of how they were very, very ill a number of years ago. And some of them were even suicidal. They just were hanging on to life with their last breath, it seemed. And they were visited by some unusual extraterrestrial beings and healed sometimes they're healed and they're aware of the healing going on sometimes the visitors come and heal them and the person is sound asleep and wakes up feeling great miraculously 
and then puts that together with, oh, yeah, there were these visitors in my room, these unusual visitors. They weren't even human. But now I feel terrific. I really have talked to a lot of people who felt that their lives had been saved by these visiting beings. And in that case, it seems like, from what I've been hearing, seems like the healings happen mostly in the person's home, right in the person's bed. For instance, the first person I ever regressed for extraterrestrial experiences <clears throat> is it back in 1991, actually. Yes, I was going to ask you um, yeah. what it was like when you first interviewed your first uh, abductee, because you may have not have been a believer in this at that time. Well, I wasn't really, although yeah. I was becoming more open. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that had happened in 1988, and it was a turning point in my life. I, I didn't know it at the moment, but it really was a, a big turning point. And that was that I was in a class um, of we were being trained in past life regression therapy. And it was my uh, fifth year of taking these training modules. It was the last training module, the highest level that this organization offered. And the trainer said at the beginning of that particular training module, the module usually went on for a week at a time. Mm -hmm very intensive training work, wonderful training work. And uh, anyway, the teacher said, those of you who are doing regression therapy work need to know that at some time, it could happen that somebody will come to you who's been visited by very unusual beings who are not human. And they might even feel like they're taken away for a while and brought back. And and they're very confused, puzzled, sometimes even traumatized. And you just need to know that uh, that's happening. And, you know, during regression work, somebody might find you and want to know more about what those experiences entailed. Well, at that point, you see, I had never heard of this before. I had never heard before that moment. I had never heard that extraterrestrials in space are real. As I said earlier, I thought they were all science fiction, <laughs> but very nice science fiction. Interesting. You know, yeah. but here, this woman whom I respected greatly was saying, no, this is really happening. And uh, so I, I was having cognitive dissonance. You know, when you have a new idea and it runs into Yes. Ideas that we've already had, and you think, well, what do I do? I mean, what's real? And just after she said that about these other beings coming to some people, and they might want regressions to that, I heard a very loud voice in my head. I don't know where it came from, but the loud voice said, pay attention to this, Barbara. You will be doing this. Whoa. So two new huge things. One, other beings really do come from somewhere else in space and interact with some people. And I will be involved in doing that work. 
So I had to spend about three years trying to find reading material about UFOs because I had thought they were all science fiction. Yeah. And and I went to some lectures by a couple of people who were uh, doing, beginning to do some work with these people who experienced these encounters. And Bud Hopkins was one and David Jacobs was another one. And, um, then by 1991, uh, one day in the shower, uh, that's, that's nice free thinking time for me, uh, I decided, you know, if anybody ever comes to me, I don't think they will, but if anybody ever did, uh, I think I could I think I could handle that pretty well because I've done a lot of past life regressions. I'd basically use the same techniques, just not you know, just steer it a little bit differently toward an event that they had wondered about in this life. And um, so it was the very same morning that I thought that, that I was in a bookstore and the woman behind the counter recognized me as somebody who did regression therapy work and asked me to work with her daughter, who was highly traumatized by having these kinds of visits with strange beings and and working with her for six sessions made such a difference for her that she said on the next visit, she said, you know, I just want you to know that I am feeling so much better about all of this. And my boyfriend and I are going to move into a little cabin out in the country behind where we lived and um, in the wilderness, basically. Yeah. And I'm feeling perfectly okay about that. And I said, well, you know, the beings who've been coming to you at your parents' house, uh, they may very well continue to come to you when you're in the cabin. And she said, yes, I know, and that's okay. So we, in one of the regressions that we had done, she had had, we went to a time when she'd had a, a really severe ear infection and so we went to when she was lying there in bed on her back and during her sleep she was aware that three very tall beings tall white beings very long fingers long arms very thin the white clothing and white skin that they came and rolled her over on her side with the infected ear on the upper side And she could feel their fingers working in her ear. And then she wasn't aware of anything. She just slept through the night. And when she woke up, she had no more pain in her ear. It was, the infection was completely healed. Wow. And there was another time when she was healed of lower back pain by a beam of light from a UFO. So that certainly helped her to realize that even though they're weird and they're different and they're they kind of frightening for us, but um, they can really do a lot of good. So anyway, yeah. that was a good beginning for me in this work. I began to think, you know, these regressions really make a difference to find out the details instead of just being left with the frightening fragments of memories. 
And then I thought, well, if anybody ever comes, I didn't necessarily think anybody would. But if anybody, and I was going on with my regular therapy practice anyway, and doing some past life regressions. And, but then people started coming and coming and coming and coming. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's just been amazing to me how many people are really affected by this. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the different species that you hear about the most. Um, in, in my research, there's about four main ET species that come up the most in encounters, but I'm, I'm sure there's many more. But like you have the grays, which can be possibly sometimes a negative experience. And then you have the blonde Nordics, which are often mostly positive. And then you have the mantid beings, which are kind of a mix of both. And and the reptilians, which are mostly more associated with negative. But um, what uh, what uh, do you hear about the most? I mean, do you, is there a certain entity that comes up in these encounters the most? Well, there are a few that come up the most. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say one particular kind. And uh, the ones that you have mentioned are the ones that uh, probably have come up the most in the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to uh, mention about the reptilians. Um, back in the, through, throughout all the 1990s, uh, whenever I heard anybody mention a reptilian being, well, I have to edit that most of the time when one of my clients would talk about reptilian beings that they had had encounters with, uh, they uh, talk about those reptilian beings in kind of a frightening way yeah. because very often the reptilians were really big, like seven feet tall and very muscly and um, muscly, strong. Uh, they had claws. Uh, they, you know, just seemed very intimidating and very often my clients would describe them as arrogant okay. and kind of, you know, superior. They, as if they acted superior. And sometimes they would wear long, beautiful robes and insignias and and even uh, pendants and jewelry of a kind. And some of the female reptilians looked incredibly exotic almost like the most exotic uh, dancer or striptease person here, but reptilian, and uh, but, but rather enticing in that way. And then sometimes they would see um, hybrid reptilian children and were to- told, like in a couple of cases, a couple of women in the 1990s, they were introduced to their reptilian son that means they're hybrid reptilian son and uh and maybe they had not even known that they had a reptilian son Mm. had taken you know from taking of the eggs and so forth and that son was living on the ship with the other reptilian beings but in both of those cases the the women who they were surprised to be introduced to their son whom they hadn't known about, and that he was a half reptilian, 
and looked different than our children. But in both of those cases, the women totally independent of each other. They didn't even know each other. Um, they responded with real positive feelings. Like in both cases, they were so proud of the sturdy, healthy-looking, muscly little little boy who was part reptilian. But huh. so I never remember one woman hopped off the medical table when her reptilian son was brought in, and she knelt down on the floor and embraced this little boy. He probably would be about four or five years old. Mm-hmm. And she said, he's so strong. He's so sturdy. I'm so proud of him. And then she she pushed back to get a good look at him. And, you know, I mean, it was a complete surprise to her that she had that hybrid son. But But he just seemed to be such a great specimen of life. And that was true of the other woman, too. She just thought, oh, this child is just wonderful. Yeah. So now many women are introduced to their hybrid children who are living on the the ships and do react in a variety of different ways, depending on the woman. Uh, Some women um, are are really, oh, you know, I... I don't. I don't even want to touch this child, you know, because it, the child looks different enough because of its being half, yeah, terrestrial. Whether it's reptilian or some other form of extraterrestrial, and they're very hesitant about maybe they can convinced, be convinced eventually to hold that baby, and they're they're always told, you know, because these babies are half human. They need to have some loving and cuddling from their human mother. And that's why we bring you here, to give that to these children, which, of course, makes sense, I think, to us. Yeah. But other women who have this happen and discover that, that they have a hybrid baby or a hybrid little child, they react differently. They think, oh... I want to hold this one. I want to love him. I want to give him love, him or her. Um, I want to bring this child back home and raise it with me. And, of course, they're always told they can't because that child is not human enough to really thrive here. And so they, they can't take that risk. But But I think it's interesting and significant that any women I've talked to, they would really, really, they they really mean it too. They would like to be able to bring that child back and love the child and teach it in human ways. The mother instincts, them. right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then a father, men too, of course, the fathers of these um, hybrid children, they react in different ways as well, as you can imagine. And some are feeling much more embracing of the child much more affectionate and would like to be able to give love and guidance and be a good dad uh, to the child and some they no 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 that's that's not for me i i i can't believe that's mine and you know are much more hesitant so you know if we humans are different from each other 
and uh, we're different in matters of that type too. Yeah. But some of these people are who really are very favorably welcoming of a hybrid child will follow that child throughout the whole growing up experience of the child and and into adulthood and in other words with many visits here and there mm-hmm. maybe one visit per year or so to that child and uh, one friend uh, of mine who was experiencing a lot of extraterrestrial contact and discovered that she had hybrid children. I think she found out that she had five hybrid children. I think three boys and two girls, maybe the other way around. And she loved them. And um, I was aware of this for several years with her. And she even um, had birthdays for them. Now, the birthdays weren't necessarily the days that those fetuses were taken out of the glass tubes on the ship that they were gestating in instead of gestating in her. They gestated yeah. in her for about two or two and a half months. Uh, and then they were taken and put into a glass tube of special fluid and special temperature and so forth. And that's how they were gestated until they were ready to be quote unquote born. Um but anyway, she was able to uh, get to know them a number of times when they were young children, uh, maybe the first eight years of the oldest one's life and then younger ones coming along too. And um, she actually um, sort of estimated their birthdays and she would celebrate their birthdays. And she would ask me and another friend to celebrate with her and she would buy presents for these children, hybrid children. And uh, we, on the way back from the international UFO Congress, the three of us would stop at a particular place in the desert on the way back to our homes in LA and the various towns. And um, there was a group of yucca trees in this particular desert off the highway, and we would go to that clump of yucca trees each year for several years, probably seven or eight years, um, on our way back from the UFO Congress, riding in the same car. We'd go to leave the next year of presents, Uh which my friend would have bought for them. I mean, the, the presents, of course, might have been totally meaningless to the children, the hybrid children, but they were whatever she could think that the children, you know, like um, hoops for hula hoop and uh, simple things that they could sort of play with to get to know what human children like to do and that that they would be able to do them too. And each year uh, when we'd go out to leave the new presents, we'd notice that the old presents that we had left there the previous year were not there anymore. And this is in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Out between Ludlow, and this is all of Southern California, uh, Ludlow and uh, Needles, where the Colorado River is. Okay, yeah. I've been there before. That area, mm-hmm. uh, 
midway between those two points. And it's just all desert with little scrubby growth and uh, some yucca plants here and there. Wow. Yeah. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so and it was it was really lovely because she was so devoted. Now she was a woman who uh, had not married and had not had children here on earth. So these children meant a lot to her. And there were other people too, like there's a woman named uh, Bridget Nielsen. Many people have known of her. Lovely, lovely young woman. Not only lovely, but a wonderful woman. And she found out that she has 35 hybrid children. Jeez, that's a lot. And we, we females have a lot of eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have them very early in life. I mean, apparently we're born with them. Mm -hmm. And so that even young children are sometimes taken by these beings, certain beings, and um, some of the eggs are removed from that little girl, even when she's very, very little. And I don't know if the hybrid children are made right away from them or if they store them and make the hybrid children later. I'm not sure how they do that. But anyway, they do take the eggs even at a very young age and at various increments along the way of the life of that female you know, even through her adult life. So just last week, somebody uh, was having a regression with me and looking at, at all of that. And she realized that um, on the particular visit that we revisited in regression, which was a couple of years ago, that experience, uh, she realized that they were again uh, taking eggs from her ovaries and they were telling her this is this is it this is all you know that you have no more eggs left for us to take we're not going to be doing this anymore mm -hmm. so she realized that she must have a lot of hybrid children she knew about some of them but but she figured as of that regression that she probably has more or would be having more you know, with the last eggs that were, were taken. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So different people react in different ways. So Just, they like humans the way they are. They 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 don't want to change humans, These a lot of these species. They like us the way we are, but they want to mix with them, their breed to make a hybrid. Yes, and I yeah. think that it seems to me... I mean, I can't prove this, but it seems to me that they choose people to make hybrids from. They choose uh, men with the sperm and women with the eggs of uh, these people that they like. Yeah. That they think this, this, is, this would be a good mixture with some of our mixture. If we're going to create a hybrid, let's use some of the traits or ingredients from these people rather than all those other people whom we don't do this with. Mm -hmm. So I point out that I think it's a compliment if somebody's eggs have been taken or men whose sperm has been taken, that's a compliment that. Yeah. Because, because each of those species 
values their own species like we do value our human species. So if they're going to mix something else in there with them, uh, they want that to be good stock. Correct. I, I have to think of it that way. So I compliment people and say, well, you know, you've got good stock that, that they value. It might be that they have a special kind of intelligence or creativity or a determination or energy or athletic ability or, you know, musical ability. I mean, who knows? But um, they also, they are very interested in the DNA in a family line. Yeah, I've heard so that. Be, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a great-grandfather maybe, and then a, the next generation, a, a, a grandmother, and then the parent, and then the adult, and then the adult's children. And when those children grow up, one of those children might might be um, experiencing these things. So that that's something that seems to be common with definitely more than one species. Yeah. You know, that they like to follow the generations of a particular DNA line. Yeah. And maybe that DNA line has certain characteristics that, that they're particularly interested in. Yeah. So then there's the other side of the coin that more darker aspects, I guess you could say it may be beyond your work a little bit, but I don't know. Um, the elites that run our world seem to be against our DNA. You can look at like GMO food as altering the human genome when we ingest them. The world economic forum wants to hack the human being. And Bill Gates has drawings on his website of altering DNA. And then as of 2021, we have this shot that people have been getting that's possibly changing our messenger DNA. So are these elites being run by a species that hates our DNA? Do you, do you feel like this is being carried out at the top by aliens in an agenda? Or is this a human agenda? Or would you have you got any feedback from any people that you've uh, regressed on this at all? Not from people I've regressed, but there certainly is opinion mm -hmm. about that. And I know that uh, many of the opinions uh, think that these leaders, World Economic Forum leaders, etc., the ones who are really trying to take over all the power, um, that, that they are at least influenced by reptilian beings. Now, this is hearsay. I can't say that I think that this is true, but I do hear it quite a bit. And some people I, I know um, believe, again, believe, we don't know for sure, um, believe that some of these uh, leaders who want total control are reptilian beings. We think, we think they're human. They certainly look human. They've lived yeah. what we would consider a human life here, but... Um, and I don't know about that. I just know that there is a lot of wondering about that. Yeah. I mean, they are unusual people to want to do what they want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, so where does that unusualness come from? I don't know. Now, there are others who uh, believe even more strongly that this is a whole satanic thing going on that these, these particular leaders um, 
are influenced by uh, demonic forces. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> and again, I don't know that for sure. I just know that some people really believe that. Some people wonder about that. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I mean, there are people who are operating very differently than the rest of us. And uh, I think we can't help but wonder, why is that? Where does that come from? Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, well, before... So that, oh, so go ahead, sorry. It, I'm it has a lot to do with, um, even among the humans, it has a lot to do with power and control. Yeah. And it has been thought about the reptilians. Again, I cannot prove this, but it has been thought widely that uh, the reptilians really... The reptilian extraterrestrials uh, really do like uh, competition and power and control. They like to win. So it that whole idea of reptilian ETs and human people who like mm -hmm. power and control, uh, it maybe there is some way that there's been an influence there. I, I really don't know, but we can't help but speculate about that and wonder. Sure. I think it deserves a little light just because of what's happened recently and what they're trying to do with DNA when you mess with that. It's just, it's a, it's, it's kind of sinister and dark. Right. And uh, well, whole AI. Yes. You know, aspect uh, that, you know, to basically replace humans yeah is is a very i think very troubling consideration troubling agenda yeah all this this um is anti-human anti-dna anti-life mm -hmm. and it right. certainly seems doesn't seem human enough because most people i know are good people and most yeah. people wouldn't even want to consider thinking that way yes I agree. That's certainly true of the people I know. I think I think that that's true of people all over the world. That yeah. most people uh, do not think in those terms. Do not want to have that kind of power over others. They just want to live their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before you go, I wanted to talk a little bit about crop circles with you and. You've been going to England for many years and observing crop circles. And yes. uh, I'll give you a quick summation of my own research and my little journey that I took. Um, there is a lot of cover up on crop circles and a lot of it has been muddied up. I've noticed, you know, kind of the waters are murky. I mean, we have that cover story a long time ago that was given to us that two guys, Dave and Doug, had been making them for decades. And then, well, <laughs> that wasn't true. But then Colin <laughs> Andrews, he says 80% are made by man, 20% are not. And then you get people like Matthew Williams, he was the first person to go to jail for making one, claims <laughs> all are man-made. And then you have Michael Lippman, a good portion of uh, are made by aliens, he says, or non-human entities. So then I watched a National Geographic documentary called Truth, The Truth Behind Crop Circles. And it was a whitewash. At first, I didn't know, but they, they got a team of hoaxers to, to, to make one overnight. And they hired actors pretending to make them and find out later that MI5 sent out crop 
makers to come out as the ones responsible. And also that Doug and Dave were hired by the British Ministry of Defense. Um, you know, so why the cover up? If, if they're covering up something, then what are the real ones? And in your experience, I guess, what, um, is the difference? Have you, have you seen the, I know that the ones that are real, the stocks are not broken. They're only, they're bent at 90 degree angles. Right. And they have kind of a swir- swirly weaving patterns, but, um, and no, nobody could have formed these intricate ones overnight in a short window of darkness in the British summer. So it, I, I mean, I guess I should just ask you, what is, um, your experience with these, the fakers and the real ones? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, <laughs> I've taken the opportunity to show. Oh my, yeah. My first book I've done. Crop four circles books. revealed. Yeah. Was revealed. Language of the light symbols is mm-hmm. the subtitle with Judith Moore and myself, Barbara Lamb. And um, this book was published in the year 2000 after 10 years of personal crop circle research. Um, well, I think that there's a, a noticeable difference between the hoaxed human made crop circles and the real ones, which we call genuine crop circles. And the genuine ones are made by some mysterious force. I think they come from beings in space, but they're, they're, not, they're definitely not done by humans. Now, uh, if you fly in a small airplane over the fields of, of England, and you look down and you see a crop circle and you, the plane goes a little bit lower. Sometimes from the point of view, the aerial point of view from up in an airplane, even a hoax one can look pretty decent. Mm-hmm. And even when you're on the ground and you go into a hoaxed crop circle, you might wonder, but in many cases, in my personal experience tramping through the fields, um, that when I'd go into a hoax crop circle, it would be pretty evident that it was man-made. For one thing, there is no change of energy in that crop circle. It it just bland in terms of energy compared to going into what we consider the genuine crop circles made by some something else or somebody else. Um, when you go in, you actually go into that crop circle, you actually can feel, especially if you're attuned to that sort of thing, uh, you can feel that there, oh, it feel, really feels different here than it did one foot behind outside the crop circle in the tractor track leading up to the crop circle. And not only that, but um, many of us who have really researched this uh, take some sort of instrumentation into the crop circle. It might be an electrostatic voltmeter. It might be a magnetometer. It might be a microwave detector, or it might be dowsing rods, which I, was using for all of those years, or it might be a pendulum, you know, 
a plumb bob hanging and registering something. So with any of those instruments, if you walk into a man-made crop circle, a hoax crop circle, the instrument does not register anything or the dowsing rods do not open or close. The pendulum does not move at all. Mm -hmm. So, In other words, it's just nothing, no difference of energy that all these methods, including microwave, uh, can detect. But if you go into a genuine one, the electrostatic voltmeter, the little dial wiggles around and ends at a high number. Same with the magnetometer. Same with the compass. They mm -hmm. really get affected. The compass needle goes around and around and usually settles a little bit off of due north for some reason, but it's affected by the energy of the crop circle. And the dowsing rods open up and the pendulum goes swinging around like mad. So, I mean, it's a very remarkable difference between the hoax crop circles and the genuine ones. You know, also, um, you mentioned yourself that with the hoax ones, the stalks are stomped over and so they break where they come up out yeah. of the earth and they lose their connection to their roots because of that. And therefore they die. So when you go into a hoax man-made crop circle, the plants look dead and even a day or two later after being made and they are dead and they don't grow anymore. But with a genuine crop circle, they're, as you said, they're just bent over, just above the ground, inch or so above the ground, beautiful curve. We call it a magical bend. And the plants keep their connection to their roots, and they keep growing and ripening and coming to full maturity. And the seeds of those plants in the genuine crop circles they are stunted and sort of dwarfed. However, if you plant them like a man in England did, for eight years he took the seeds from those plants and planted them. And those plants of wheat or barley or whatever it was grew much faster, stronger, sturdier, and more nourishing than control plants from outside the crop circle. Oh, interesting. So that, yeah. In fact, there was a year there late in the 1990s when there were groups of people <laughs> gathering up big chunks of the laid down crop from the genuine crop circles and making bread and muffins and beer, <laughs> and oh. lots of different substances from that. And they yeah. claimed that it, I don't know if this was true, but uh, they claimed that it was a lot more nourishing than the rest of the plants in the field, the same field, same crop, uh, but the ones affected by the genuine crops were much more nourishing and effective, not only growing faster, but, you know, were much better for us. So, but then it turned out to be so labor intensive and expensive to <laughs> make products. Sure. Uh, the crop circle, the genuine plants that, that they, uh, I, they I have not continued that 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 I know of, but so it is. Um, 
Uh, it is apparent. So uh, one of the last years that I took a crop circle tour group, they were all Americans who flew over. And um, I purposely took them to two crop circles after they had arrived, um, took them to two crop circles that I thought were genuine. And I didn't say that to them, but I just introduced them to it, took them to the field, through the field, into the crop circle. And then I just let them wander around and do whatever they want to do. And um, so they got used to those. And then um, I took them to what I knew was a hoaxed crop circle. Yeah. I knew for sure it was. And um, and I even met the one of the guys in the team of men that went out to make it. And he showed me a picture of it the night before. He said, tonight, in the middle of the night, we're going to make this crop circle. And I found out where it was the next day. We went to it. Yeah, they'd made that pattern. That mm -hmm. was, they, they did it. So anyway, um, so I took them to this one that I knew was man-made. And again, didn't say anything about it being man-made or being different than the others or anything. I just was curious. There were uh, 16 people in our group. And I just thought, well, it'll be interesting to see if anybody picks up on this. And so we were in that crop circle for a couple of hours. And one by one, people would come to me and say, Barbara, you know, this one is sort of disappointing. It, it's not, it doesn't have that thrill to it, it doesn't have that lovely feeling to it that, that the others, it doesn't have this shine to the plants. And I'd say, you're right. This is a man-made crop circle. Don't tell <laughs> anybody else. And then another person would come and say, you know, there's something wrong with this crop circle. <laughs> <laughs> or why does this crop circle seem so dead? You know, and so they were getting to see for themselves that there's a difference. That's Rather interesting. Being That's good. To see the difference, yeah. you know, being influenced by me, I just let them discover it for themselves, which is really, really a fun thing to do. Yeah, I, that would have been fun. Why do you suppose right there? In, I mean, I know there is some found in other places in the world, but it's not often. Do you have any idea why there in Wiltshire County, there's just so many there? Is there something that attracts entities to this land. I mean, I know we got Stonehenge nearby, Avesbury Hinge, but it's weird that it's all mostly just in that one concentrated area. Right. Well, there are, th are theories about that. I think, I think they all are uh, respectable theories too. And then again, nobody knows absolutely for sure, but sure. in that particular territory, we have three things that many other areas don't have. Uh, for one thing, we have a lot of ancient sacred sites, yeah. these big megalithic stone sites. Now, you can find those in certain parts of France and other countries too, but uh, but they really proliferate there in England, particularly in southern England, although there are loads in Scotland as well, and northern England. Uh, so ancient sacred sites seems to be one attracting feature 
uh, to those beings from elsewhere um, making crop circles. And then there are ley lines of energy running through the earth. It's almost like a, a stream or a water current, but it's just energy. It's not water. Meridians. The energy, where the ley lines come together and cross each other, mm-hmm. or even more than two energy lines come together, that's considered a power point of ley line energy. And that's where a lot of the ancient megalithic sites were constructed. And later on, a lot of the chapels and churches and even cathedrals were constructed at those ley line power points. And that's where crop circles seem to be landing, quite near those. Yes. Seems that's almost an attractor, a, a beacon of attraction, so to speak, that energy in the earth itself. But maybe the main reason is that it's the component of water, underground water, like that whole area of Wiltshire County and some of the other counties in England where there are crop circles, under the surface of the soil are geological aquifers of water. So it, now one of the theories about how the crop circles, the real ones, are actually made, regardless of who's doing it, you know, but uh, one of the reasons given for how they are made is that they are attracted to water. In other words, uh, like one theory of uh, Dr. Levengood in Michigan, a biophysicist who tested thousands of plants in and out of crop circles, and, you know, the fake ones and the real ones, And for quite a while there, he was promoting a theory that there's an energy plasma vortex coming from the upper atmosphere, coming down to the earth, and it had a lot of heat in it. And the heat in the plasma vortex, like a little whirlwind, uh, would draw up the moisture from under the surface of the soil from the geological aquifers, creating a steam effect. And the steam effect is what influenced the plants to bend over without breaking and to be laid down along the ground. And the steam effect allowed the stalks to be swirled into these beautiful circles in the crop circle and, and also allowed them the stalks to be laid down in a braiding effect and a cross effect. Uh, so I, th- I think that that makes tremendous sense. Now that whatever that energy plasma vortex was coming down, that must have been pre-patterned because these patterns are very specific and sometimes extremely intricate and perfect. They were like with each shape looking perfect in relation to each other shape. That is the standing shapes and the laid down shapes. Uh, so, So anyway, I think that the water component 
underground streams, underground lakes, geological aquifers, um, underground rivers, even in some cases, that that seems to attract the making of a genuine crop circle. And I think it makes total sense about this steam effect, because we know we could take um, wood, like people who work with wood lamination, and you steam it, and then you can bend it into these beautiful curves, and it will stay that way. But normally you could not bend wood in that way. I think it's the same with the stalks of the the growing crops. Yeah, that can make sense. And they will remain curved and laying along the ground and be still alive. Yeah. Yeah. I No, I've noticed that they've gone from basic. There's been an evolution to them. They've gone from basic to more very intricate. W- what is your thoughts on the progression from just plain circles to really complex geometric patterns that are, you know, like on your necklace, for example. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, what What is your thoughts? Like, are, are they trying to communicate? They, they definitely come from just a circle to, to some incredible designs in Mm. really not that long of a time period. Well, that's right. Like in the 1970s and before that, um, occasionally it's been reported in the early 1900s and the 1800s, the 1700s, even the 1600s. Occasionally it would be reported somewhere that a farmer had seen a perfect circle swirled in the crop you know usually wheat but it could have been barley or oats or rye or um seed canola or flax or you know loads of different kinds of crops uh, primarily wheat and um and he would report that uh, maybe to the local newspaper but it never usually got beyond that there was one in 1678 uh, that was a drawing of it, like a woodcut drawing was depicted in a local newspaper in England. Oh, yes. And they referred to this, well, what we now think of as a crop circle, but they uh, they didn't have that word. They didn't know about that then. Uh, they, they called it the mowing devil. Yeah. They drew a picture of a little devil with a very... Um, rudimentary basic basic sort of a hoe mm-hmm. thing instrument um you know touching the crop and um so that was 1678 and maybe maybe they happened even before that but of course there wasn't the concept of crop circle so nobody talked about it that way uh, in fact in those early days they used to uh sometimes refer to a crop circle like that as a fairy ring. Mm. Those days they believe more in fairies yeah. uh, than we do these days. Uh, but anyway, in the early 1980s, there was a beautiful, simple circle laid down in Hampshire County, England, next to Wiltshire County. And uh, Colin Andrews, an electrical engineer, drove home from work one day and looked down the hill as he went by. Oh, I wonder what that circle is. He stopped and looked at it. Huh, in the wheat field, that's interesting. He went, climbed down the hill and 
went into it and thought this is really strange and amazing and quite lovely, really. And um, he started getting interested in it. Now, from my perspective, all these years later, it seems like as soon as people started noticing these simple circles, we were given more and more complex patterns. So from the simple circles in the early, well, 1970s and early 1980s, then eventually in the 1980s, we began to see a simple circle with a perfect ring around it. And then by later 1980s, Colin Andrews and Busty Taylor, who was a pilot of a small private airplane, would take Colin up to look at these patterns from the air. Um, They said, wouldn't it be nice, we've had circles and we've had circles with rings, wouldn't it be nice if um, we could see a Celtic cross in a crop circle? They said that one day in the airplane, nobody else around, they never repeated that to anybody, but that night, a crop circle was made, the circle and the ring and a cross in it was the perfect, like the ancient Celtic cross that they had been asking for. And they thought, who was listening? (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about that. How could that happen? And they noticed that as they were talking about still other patterns, that usually that very night, even though they talked in total privacy, and had told nobody else that they had talked about a particular pattern, but that that pattern would show up in the fields that night. So I I am intrigued by this, I think, and because of my extraterrestrial work with people who experience them, I think that there's a whole consciousness connection between us here on Earth and some of those beings out there. Now, whether they do remote viewing or they can hear from millions of miles away or or they're just psychically tuned in, I, I don't know how that works technically. Yeah. But it seems like as our consciousness has grown and has been applied to this phenomenon, we get the response of more complex, uh, complicated crop circles that embrace some of those ideas. For instance, we've had a lot of patterns that in crop circles that we don't really know the meaning of. We, we kind of sense that this has got to mean something but we might not know exactly what it does. Now, some of the crop circles seem to be more like ancient alchemical symbols. Some are really tuned into geometry. Now, geometry is prob- and math are probably the languages of the whole universe of existence. I mean, I've heard that many times from mathematicians this would be the universal language. And I think it's the same with geometry. 
So a lot of the crop circles emphasize exquisite geometries. Some of them um, uh, are fractals, showing different kinds of fractal geometries. And there are whole books I've seen on fractals, the fractals in nature, the way that plants grow and, and many features of nature grow in a fractal pattern. And um, the fractals began in 19, or the fractal crop circle patterns began in 1991 uh, when um, suddenly people saw in the field this beautiful, what they call a Mandelbrot set of, is a form of fractal geometry. And it just happens that that Mandelbrot set was placed in a field, we think by the genuine crop circle makers, that was right outside of the town of Cambridge, where there's Cambridge University in England, and a professor, Benoit Mandelbrot from Princeton, had been guest teaching at Cambridge University, and just either before he left or just after he left that guest teaching, there was a crop circle outside of Cambridge in the Mandelbrot set that he had been teaching about. So, you see, I think that there is awareness of that intelligence out in space, awareness of some people here doing things like he was bringing through new geometry information about fractal geometry at Cambridge University, which is a very uh, prestigious, respected university. And there they gave him the gift, at least I think of it this way, they gave him the gift, they commemorated that teaching about fractal geometry by giving him a perfect example of Mandelbrot Uh, And and the Mandelbrot set of fractal geometry was named after him. And they gave him, or all of us, uh, that perfect example of a a Mandelbrot set, they call it, of fractal geometry. And then it went on from there. So that was 1991. But um, in 1996, a few years later, uh, there was a beautiful... A fractal pattern across from Stonehenge, the next field across from the big plain where Stonehenge is. Yeah. And uh, that was called the Julia set from a geometer in Germany, Professor Julia. And, and that, you know, had a circle and a big curve of these beautiful circles. And each one of those circles had three little circles coming off of it. So a fractal um, is a pattern that as part of the pattern, the same pattern can be repeated off the edge of that and off the edge of that, another one smaller and smaller. It can self-replicate, in other words, to infinity. So in 1996 and seven and eight, Uh, We had several patterns, particularly in Wiltshire County, uh, but some in the neighboring counties as well, um, where they were 
different forms of uh, Julia sets and fractal geometries. So, I mean, I, so I think that we're being educated and that, that some of our understanding of things like fractals is being emphasized to us. Yeah. Like I, for instance, never heard of fractal geometry until I was very involved with crop circles. And yeah. I think that that's true of a lot of us. We've gotten, we've been educated by these crop circles. And some of them um, um, are showing symbols that we really do recognize. Like, for instance, there is the Kabbalah tree of life. Right. And a beautiful crop circle. And um, there also was the, the Jewish menorah with the, the little oil lamp right nearby. And uh, there are Arab symbols and there are Christian symbols. Uh, there are a number of cases where there's been a beautiful, beautiful Christian cross. Uh, in some cases, it could be kind of set in a wavy pattern. In others, it's a very straight pattern. Others, it's a Celtic cross with the curve in it. There was a beautiful Christian cross laid down in a corn field. Now, that corn was 12 feet high and thick stalks and all the leaves mm -hmm. and cobs of corn on it, 12 feet tall. And in that field, one night, it was laid down into a beautiful, absolutely perfect, three-dimensional-looking Christian cross. We still cannot figure how that could possibly have been achieved. But it was. Yeah. And nothing was destroyed. Nothing was ruined. Nothing was broken. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just being involved in it is was so exciting, still is, just to see the pictures. I'm not going these years right now, but um, it's so exciting to be involved in it and see what happens. Oh, by the way, I think it's worth mentioning that in May of the year 2020, yeah. here we were involved with the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And in one crop circle in May 2020, there was a crop circle in England, and it showed a depiction of the coronavirus with different aspects in it, uh -huh. this crop circle, and then a long, kind of like a long spike coming out of it, which was emphasizing the spike protein. So here this pandemic was going on on Earth, and we were getting that, I think, from out there. And this was deemed to be a genuine crop circle, not a man-made one. So that was May of 2020. And then very few months later, in August of 2020, there was a crop circle that looked like a chemical molecule, you know, with the different parts. Yeah. Yeah. And that has been interpreted by some as the antidote to the coronavirus. Hmm. 
the healing agent for the coronavirus. And it turns out by a scientist who really analyzed that molecule and where it came from, what it belonged to, that it was a molecule of a weed that grows all over the world and is totally free. It just grows either on by itself, not even a planted crop. And that if people would just become aware of that, they could make some sort of potion or medication, tincture or whatever, extra um, from that particular plant to cure the virus if they have it. Now, I don't think anybody has actually followed through and done that. But I think that we were being given that information. Yeah, probably. As well as some of the other glyphs, too, that have communicated in the past, like the chill bolting glyphs. uh, uh, The the one with that gray alien, I don't know what that was all about exactly, but there's so much that they've been communicating through the times. That that gray alien one in two thousand two, yeah, at Teal Bolton, that that was um, extremely significant. I think not only was it a depiction of a gray alien that probably much of the world would recognize that face as a, a gray alien face, yeah, and and that gray alien was holding a a disc. An information disc, like a CD. Yeah. And with lots of little standing shapes. Binary code, right? It was a binary code, ASCII code. And uh, that has been uh, translated by various people. And basically kind of putting a bunch of translations together. They're all pretty similar. It was saying, beware of false gifts and false prophets. We yeah. we abhor lies and deceit. Um, the conduit is closing. Maybe that means between them and us, I don't know. But there is still time. But basically, it seems like this was a warning. And I think at first, when that happened in 2002... I think that many of us were thinking we're being warned about the, or some people did, I didn't personally, but we're being, we humans are being warned that there were these extraterrestrials who could be deceiving us. But as time goes on, I think the meaning was from extraterrestrials warning us about the humans who were lying to us and causing disease right i agree putting us down a real nefarious path and uh but they were saying there's still time and the conduit is closing maybe that means okay we're we're here warning you in 2002 things are going to get worse more more of certain people are going to want control Beware, beware of that. Beware of false promises. We hate lies, you know. And so there's still time if you wake up and smell the flowers, notice what's going on. (laughs) But the conduit between us is closing. I mean, we're giving you warning now. Just 
take it as it is. You're still time to do something so you don't get taken over by all that. Yeah. Well, they were right. I think so. At least I think so. I do too. <laughs> yeah. Well, Barbara, it's been great having you. I have to probably close this out, but um, you're you're full of great experience and knowledge on all this. It's wonderful to have you on. Thank you. Where can people find your your website, uh, your materials, all the good yeah. work you do? Oh, well, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, my website is quite simple. It's Barbara Lamb, L-A-M-B, Barbara Lamb Regressions.com. And on that website, there are uh, videos, interviews, a lot of different things, including the ability, if anybody's interested in buying my books. So we mentioned the Crop Circle book and the Hybrid book. And also in 2008, I did the um, Alien Experiences book, mm-hmm. about 25 cases of, of real-life encounters that had come out of my practice. And they're all a different kind of scenario, too. It's not just with different kinds of beings. It's not just the same old thing repeated. So that's very interesting to people who want to know more about the encounters. And then the last one um, in 2020, actually, um, is this book for children, Kids Adventures with E.T. Friends in Space. Uh-huh. Uh, but Mary Edwards illustrated it. And uh, these are cases that have come from my work with children, children's extraterrestrial experiences. So it's mostly a picture book. But we feel it's it's a wonderful thing for uh, parents to read to children. And if children have had any of those experiences, they can talk maybe more freely about them with their parents or maybe parents. Well, we've had this happen. We've gotten feedback that some parents have read it to their children, and that stimulates their awareness that they, too, had been having experiences with these other beings. That's great. So as a, as a psychotherapist, I know that when material is sort of repressed, important material like something like this, uh, that is repressed and stuck in the subconscious part of the mind, it's more harmful to the person than if it can come up to the light of consciousness. And then the person can relate to it. And, and can work with it, emote over it if they if they want to. Learn more if they want to. Yeah. 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 But um, so we think it's it's a uh, a little a little gem. And we have a hardcover version and a soft cover version. And uh, even for people who have nothing to do with extraterrestrial contacts, it helps to broaden their view of reality because this is definitely part of reality. Yeah, it is. And it's important for people to learn on it about a bigger universe out there. I think a bigger world. And because I think we're in a time here on planet earth that it's going to happen anyway. People are going to, I feel like people are going to learn about some things like that pretty soon. 
I watch the skies all the time. I've seen a lot of stuff lately. Yeah. Really? Yeah, there, yeah. Apparently, it's a lot happening. Yeah. I'm in San Diego, too. There's a lot along the coast mm-hmm. and inland as well, but especially along the California, Southern California coast. Yeah. We think awesome. there's a UFO base under the sea there, probably. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's got a, there's a lot of things going on up there. I mean, uh, I've been getting communicated with a few times where they'll flash at me. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So we were talking about communication from crop circles and stuff like that. Well, I feel like there's communication like that too. If you, it's a telepathic thing. So I encourage everybody to look at the skies, but Barbara, (laughs) great to have you on. Um, you can you're welcome on anytime again. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you and all of your viewers. Thank you. Now, I know this has been a very long episode, so if you made it here without stopping, you're quite the listener. But um, this is just going to be a quick tale of my encounter. Now, I did share this on episode 81, Tales from the Sky way back, but for those that are new listeners and haven't dug into the archives, I'm just going to tell a quick story here. of uh, When I was living on the island of Kauai in the year 2000, on Kauai, there is um, not a lot of street lights. It's a darker, unpopulated island as far as especially at night. Now, coming back to that, <clears throat> I was in my drifter days. I was not paying bills, trying to live as free as I could. It was almost like an experiment. And the best stories of my life come from this period. So if you know anything about what I, I've been through and how about a year before that I learned about how the world works and everything from an insider, then it fits into this time period. Well, so what had happened is I'd signed up for a house, or it was actually a storage shed to live in. It was only $200 a month, and I thought that was really good. Um, <clears throat> but it ended up being roommates with, I didn't know I was going to have a roommate roommates with this, this kid who was super annoying. I was like 22 and he was like 18 and just that he was just super annoying. So I had to get out of there. So I decided, you know, I'm just going to live in a tent on the beach, but, um, it was really rainy, especially on this side of the Island, the North shore of Kauai where it's, <clears throat> you know, pretty, pretty rainy, uh, climate it gets about, just where I was staying, about 80 inches a year. Not that fun in a tent. And I'd been friends with this uh, surfer guy, and he said, you know, if you if you need for, like, a transitional period, you can just, you know, sleep in the back of my pickup truck. I have a canopy. You can, you know, put a sleeping bag in there in case you need to, you know. And, and I said, well, I think I'm okay here. But then I did take him up on the offer. I really need to, like, restructure my life, and I wasn't too happy in the rain, so I did. Uh, just for about a week, so... <clears throat> one night, I went to bed, you know, it's just the back of a pickup truck with a canopy over it, and I, and then he lived with his girlfriend in, in this small house <clears throat> next to the truck a little ways, they had two dogs, and um, so I was, you know, going to sleep, as usual, and I might have woke up around 11 at night, and the two dogs were making funny noises. They weren't making noises that were barking. And these dogs barked at everything, okay? They barked at, you know, everything that went by, like, just because they were good watchdogs. But instead, they were making strange noises, like, like that. And 
it woke me up enough that I was like, well, what are, you know, what are they interested in? And I was like, well, I don't know, but I got to go pee. So I decided to go and, you know, get out of the canopy and I'm about to take a pee and I look down the road about a quarter mile. Now there's no street lights in this area. You know, this is pitch dark. You know, when it's dark, I mean, it's really dark. You know, you can just see stars and maybe a couple of lights in the distance of houses. But what I saw a quarter mile down the road was a weird configuration of lights on the road. And so there's a fork. It's a gravel road, and it was a fork. And it was basically right at the fork where this configuration of lights were. And I knew it wasn't right. Looking at it, it was, there were some, maybe some reds and blues and, and maybe some yellows. You know, it was very hard to figure out. It was on the back of a car. And I knew immediately, this is all in the matter of seconds, that it wasn't right. And a huge fear came over me. So I didn't even take my pee. And I went right in the back of that truck and, you know, did up the canopy and I hid under my sleeping bag. But I kept my eyes open, a little crack open to look at the sky. And, you know, it would take a little bit. And then all of a sudden, the sky lit up gold color, bright gold, and just went, and that was it, big flash of gold. And I didn't get any sleep that night, and I woke up, and I was sick. And I got really sick. In fact, I was sick for probably about four months. I had this horrible cough. And so the fear was an immediate thing, and... So my encounter was not a th close encounter of a third kind, but of the second kind. And because it was such a, you know, impactful thing, I guess it suppressed my immune system. I really don't know. Who knows? It could have been from all the spraying they were doing because they kind of started spraying around that time a lot heavier, around 2000. But anyway, uh... Whatever happened with that, who knows? I don't know. But it, it definitely got me thinking about this realm of things. And that's why I cover the Beyond Earth series. So even though there is a lot of bullshit and a lot of a lot of uh, charlatans and a wash of, of train wreck of information in this UFOlogy community, I cannot ignore the situations that I've been through and seeing myself, and that's just one of, that's a big story, but as far as UFOs I've seen in my life, I've maybe tripled them, doubled, uh, no, quad, I've seen so many in the last year now that I watch the skies, and as of this recording, three nights ago, one flashed at me twice, and it was an, it was an intuitive, telepathic kind of connection, so, and when that happens to you, it's a communication to you. So I thought I'd share that to you. Uh, I didn't have time because Barbara, she has a lot to say, and I just want to let her say what she says. She's my guest. But that was quite, that's quite an experience to see that, that kind of thing. So I just want to add that in. I hope you enjoy this episode, a very long one. But, um, well, till we meet again. Keep on chanting down the system. 
and get away from the conventional ways of every thinking because there's a whole lot more in this world than just what they tell you is there. Well, I hope you enjoy that episode. Even if you're not into ufology and you're into other information I cover, I think it's uh, a very interesting thing to really think about. All this information, crop circles, you know, it's not just stuff that's there just as a gimmick. There's there's a truth behind it all. And people are having these experiences all over and have been for a long time. It goes back into ancient history. So my thoughts as Barbara was talking is, and I'll talk more about this on Afterthoughts, is are some of us hybrids that see the truth? Are we people that have more in us than and those of us that look at the sky all the time? Are, are, we, are we part of something greater? And those of us that are awake, are we hybrids of some sort? Different than the people that just won't wake up and just won't budge. You gotta wonder. You gotta ask. Because no matter how you try to wake people up and how you try to... Uh, get them to see the truth they just still won't and you gotta wonder if maybe they're not of this hybrid I don't know it's just the thought that I had when she was talking because maybe we all have these seeds that allow us to see a bigger world than the regular humans I don't know sometimes I feel like that Sometimes I feel like I'm not from here because I certainly don't belong to the things that people subscribe to, obviously. And I don't think you do either because you chant it down. And thank you for chanting it down. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to the Patreon show Afterthoughts, you can. If you want to support the show, you can. If not, enjoy the free show. Always much love. Be a warrior, not a warrior. Chant it down. Chant it down, radio's coming to you live from the Hawaiian Islands, coming from the perspective of complete freedom, coming from wisdom outside the system, and then some. This is the mouthpiece of the natural earth forgotten. At this point in time, humanity's been kept from the truth, so Chant it down, radio offers the coordinates to a path out. You're searching for something whole, cause what you see is real life. You're watching this world unfold, the truth beneath the lies. Rekindling what's been stole, the need to free one's mind. Uncover the truth exposed, so people see the light. Let's chant it down, so we can know. It's simple, we just break it down a little bit, so we can process all. Make the switch to elevate yourself to conscious mode. And it's beneficial, we can get this kind of road. And get the future generations want to start the whole thing. But the message is this really, we can start a post. Taking in the simulating, getting lots of numbers. Waking up the possibility to try to stop hypnosis. Check.